You're listening to Counsel That Cares, a podcast series brought to you by Holland and Knight's healthcare and life sciences team. With more than 400 attorneys practicing across the healthcare industry, members of our healthcare and life sciences team are on the leading edge of industry developments. This series serves as your personal checkup on the multifaceted playing field of healthcare law and business trends. Welcome to Council That Cares. This is Morgan Ribeiro. I am a director in the firm's healthcare practice and the host of the podcast. And on today's uh, episode, we are launching our mini-series on value-based care. Joining me is Daniel Patton, who is a partner in the firm's healthcare regulatory and enforcement group. And on this episode, we will be discussing a report that was recently published by BMG on healthcare M&A, and in particular, their findings on value-based care transactions and risk-bearing organizations. From BMG, we have Chance Schur and Daniel. And Chance, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Morgan. Thanks, Morgan. So before we get started on the meat of the conversation, I want to provide just a minute for each of you to tell us more about yourself and your practice. Um, so Chance, I'll start with you. And in addition to your background, um, and, and your practice would love to just hear more information also about BMG. Yeah, sure, sure. So, again, uh, Chance here. I'm a managing director in BMG Health Valuation and Transaction Service Division. I'm based in our Denver office. Uh, so, what I do is I do valuations, uh, mostly compliance-based valuations. You know, fair market value opinions for everything from a one-doc practice all the way up to the merger of you know large health systems, and that includes you know everything in between: inpatient, outpatient, health plans. You know, you name it, we do it. Fits in healthcare from a valuation perspective. Uh, I've been at at VMG for over 16 years. Uh, VMG Health, as a larger organization, uh, has actually been around since 1995, and you know we try to position ourselves as almost a one-stop shop for transaction or consulting uh, needs within the healthcare space. So. We have folks that, uh, you know, also other teams that also specialize in business valuation, but we also do contractual based valuation, which would be like physician compensation or medical directorships and things like that. We have a real estate division. We do uh, due diligence and quality of earnings analyses. Uh, we have a coding arm and we also have a, a pretty in-depth strategy division. So that's VMG Health in a nutshell. Awesome. And then you did talk a little bit about your practice. I'm curious, just as we think about today's episode, is there a particular aspect of your growing area of your practice that is focused on value-based care? Yeah, yeah. So we're looking at it from a couple of perspectives. You know, our, our contractual valuation division, they're thinking about it as, you know, ways for physicians to participate in value-based care, how to think about, you know, any costs for the management of basically the technology and everything that goes along with you know, managing that that process of achieving that value-based care dollar. From the business valuation perspective, we're looking at it in terms of some of these large pay biders as they're acquiring, you know, a lot of times primary care practices and, and thinking through that from a fair market value and a transaction perspective. And then on their strategy side, obviously, we're working through with uh, with health systems as they're thinking through, you know, they have these large captive physician groups thinking through their value-based strategy and how that aligns with their overall payer and kind of setting of care goals going forward. Uh, and of course, we have, you know, in our coding team and everything, we're doing coding audits and everything and, and making sure that, you know, everything's recorded ap- appropriately so that as you go into a value-based model or you acquire practice, that you're going to transition to a value-based model, billing and everything, uh, you know, makes sense. Thank you. All right. And Daniel, a uh, little brief introduction for you. 
Yeah. Thanks, Morgan. So in the healthcare regulatory enforcement group here at Holland and Knight, uh, my practice focuses on variety matters, but value-based care has been a big part of my practice, especially in the last two, three years. I represent mostly providers, you know, physician practices and, and the like, as opposed to maybe the payvider side. And so those, you know, my role there can be from contract negotiation to understanding, you know, risk-based organization status and requirements around those rules, uh, but also, you know, helping individuals and, and uh, entities get into the value-based space. You know, what are, what do they need to be thinking about? How are they prepping? How do we need to stay flexible? Um, how do we need to organize um, and be nimble to transition into that space? So kind of all over the map, but definitely more focused on the, the provider side of the house there. Excellent. All right. Thank you both for that introduction. And, and while we want to focus on value-based care in this episode, before we jump in, I wanted to learn from Chance more about the report um, that you all published, um, which I mentioned earlier. It's a it's a healthcare M and A report covers a lot of different sectors, value based care being one of them. Actually, a newer section for your annual report this year, and just any high level findings regarding the healthcare M and A landscape. Yeah, so you know the the healthcare M and A landscape has been very interesting the last few years, right? So we went from you know, in 2020, when we had the pandemic, you know, transactions slowed for a bit. And we also kind of saw a fundamental shift in healthcare to get to more outpatient and telehealth became very popular or accelerated that in the marketplace. And then so we get into 2021, where we saw a tremendous amount of transaction activity. Again, this was a reaction to certain participants, you know, struggling through the pandemic, uh, an enormous amount of capital out there to deploy. And then also, uh, easy access to expensive debt. So then we get to our 2023 report, which is based on our observations of what we saw in 2022, and then uh, you know the early part of 2023. And I think what I would say about 2022 is really you can kind of almost break it into two halves. You kind of have that first half that was very, very much uh, like 2021 with a lot of transactions, a lot of bigger deals, easy access to capital and whatnot. The second half was a bit different because we had a, a different factor, especially if we think about our financial investors, you know, as because starting in June is when the Fed started increasing the rates and increasing uh, the cost of debt and the access to that debt changed and everything. So we saw a little bit of a change in the market and as far as tightening and access to that debt. That being said, overall in 2022, you know, we saw, I think, a few less transactions than what we saw in 2021. But from a total value perspective, there was actually an increase in total deal value. And that's because there were some really large transactions in 22. And actually, some of them were in the value-based space. Kind of just overall, what we um, we saw again, financial investors, you know, private equity and whatnot were were heavily involved. You know, we've seen a ten percent increase, so the annual increase over the last ten years uh, related to private equity investment within healthcare. We also saw in twenty twenty two that continued interest in the in physician practices and even behavioral health. We saw that continuation, and then of course, you know, germane to this conversation, we're seeing you know further payer provider com- convergence and the entrance of kind of non traditional ent- entities in the healthcare space. So, you know, it was uh, 2022 uh, was an interesting year, you know, driven by a lot of uh, what happened in the previous years. Very nice job summarizing a yeah. quite a robust report. Um, I think that's really helpful perspective as we look at the value-based care transactions. As I mentioned earlier, this is the first year that you all have included that sector in your annual report. And really that's, you know, a great indicator of 
a heightened interest and investment in the space. What is, you know, from your perspective, what's driving the activity in the value-based care sector? There's there's just been a notable increase in the number of entities seeking to capitalize on this shift, right? From fee-for-service to a value-based care model. And I think what's important to understand is when we say value-based care or risk or whatever, that can mean a lot of different things. And there's a lot of different players in that market. So that could include, you know, payers, payviders, meaning payers that have interest in actual providers and physician practices. Uh, health systems are involved, obviously, and obviously private equity. But I think uh, another big aspect of it is what I would call kind of the enablers or technology kind of based platforms that that help either health systems or payers or practices, you know, uh, navigate through the value-based care landscape and whatever level of, of financial risk they're going to participate in. Um, so a lot of activity there and the emergence of those types of companies is this is this is actually quite a complex space, I think, as, as everyone would recognize. And so you need that capital, you need that help in a lot of instances. And so a lot of people are looking to those types of entities. Also, just given the variety of participants in the value-based care space and it being an emergent market, it is very highly fragmented. And so anytime you have an industry that's fragmented, that's just ripe for consolidation, which is what we've seen, you know, and what I think we'll continue to see. So the shift towards value-based care has been in discussions for, for many, many years. And, you know, I'd say over the last decade, we've really been kind of going round and round about this, but it, it does seem like over the last few years, it's it's really increased. And I think this was most notable when CMS, the CMS Innovation Center was established in 2010 as part of the Affordable Care Act. And so since then, CMS has continually pushed containing healthcare costs by moving lives from that traditional fee-for-service Medicare to Medicare Advantage. Can you speak more to some of the trends you're seeing as it relates to Medicare Advantage and, and kind of how that ties back to this overall conversation around value-based care? Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about it, what it, it's it's shifting of risk, right? And so the CMS is basically shifting the risk of the cost of care to private organizations, right? And that's how they did that through Medicare Advantage. I think everyone understands that. But it's actually, you know, more importantly, I think everyone, including CMS, is believing this to be successful. And so there's a lot of incentives to push members into uh, an MA type product. Uh, for the payers, I think most importantly, you know what what we've tend to see and see in the data is that the PMPM payment is actually higher than what the the fee for service payment would be. So uh, that incentivizes the plans to participate based on the bidding process and everything. A lot of times, what that allows for is you know the Medicare population to actually participate in some uh, extra benefits, whether it be dental or vision or uh, or zero premium type plans. So. It, all of that is leading to the shift. And also, you know, there's just been more access. The average Medicare beneficiary has access to almost 40 MA plans today, whereas, you know, in 2011, that was closer to like 19. Um, so what we expect and, you know, we just expect this to continue. And, you know, we're going to see more and more of uh, Medicare beneficiaries moving to a Medicare an um, MA type plan. Uh, I think what's interesting to note about this is that market penetration of Medicare beneficiaries to MA plans varies by geography. You know, some geographies are very heavy MA, some are very light and more, you know, traditional Medicare. But uh, all this means is that as there's more transition to a Medicare Advantage type 
product for these beneficiaries that allows more players to participate, whether it be the enablers, the payers or whatnot. And so we're going to, you know, anyone that can kind of capitalize on on managing that life, you know, we're going to see a lot more entrance and a lot more vertical integration through the future. Are there particular markets or for some reason why certain markets are more concentrated with MA plans? So if you think of California as the traditional kind of home of a, you know, managed life, right? And so it's just, you know, with Kaiser and everything, that that's kind of where it objectively started, right? And then you have geographies that it's more demographic based, why they're so uh, MA based. So, you know, maybe it's a Florida or uh, a marketplace like that. As far as why certain marketplaces are behind, I don't have a good answer for you, but you know, uh, ones that come to mind, uh, New Jersey is, is, is top of my mind, relatively little MA penetration there relative to, to other markets. So uh, I think it's just because the industry, you know, it's such a populated area and it's so fragmented from both a payer and a employer group and everything that the management of a whole life is just a little bit behind there because it's unique that you have a dense population, but very fragmented as far as healthcare services and types and everything like that. So it's just, I'm assuming it'll get there relatively soon. Okay. So we cannot have this conversation about value-based care without talking about the regulatory and, and reimbursement landscape overall. And we'll get to this in a minute, really talking more about notable deals and investors and, and transactions in the space. But you know, the regulatory and reimbursement piece of this is, is a huge driver both you and Daniel are are equipped to, you know, really share with us more information and sort of lay the the foundation for what's going on here. You know, Daniel, do you have anything in particular as we think about kind of the reimbursement piece of this, anything notable that's happened over the last year or so that may be driving some of this additional activity? Yeah, I think overall you're seeing CMS, right, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which really drives a lot of the policy for, you know, downstream to commercial MA, obviously, is really doubling down. You know, Morgan, you said earlier, it's been, you know, 10 years, we're still talking about this. And, you know, I think a good example, and we'll explore in a later podcast, is uh, the new enhancing oncology model. Uh, it's a, CMS is really part two of the oncology care model that had a lot of mixed results and, you know, there are a lot of opinions about it in the industry. Maybe it wasn't as big of a success as CMS had originally hoped, but really doubling down a lot of similarities in the program. And so that that's probably one piece. Uh, the second is we've exited the PHE, the public health emergency. And, you know, the two biggest drivers and growth we've seen is really on the telehealth and behavioral front, right? With reimbursement changes there and um, telehealth, some of the waivers extending to the end of this calendar year. And you see a lot more acceptance of the behavioral health as well. So CMS in its in its rule for the physician's fee schedule update that was released last November uh, talked a little bit about the telehealth and behavioral health really expansion, right? Maybe bringing in uh, lower level providers to provide some reimbursable services and finding more ways to use telehealth to create greater access to care. You know, outside of that, you know, I wouldn't say falls squarely in the value base, but you're seeing more and more, you know, initiatives like CMS's program, emergency triage, treat and transport model, the ET3, seeing more developments across the states in terms of how do we put more control in the provider's hands and some of these lower level providers to work together, you know, ambulance providers and primary care physicians, hospitals, home health agencies. And I've seen a lot of drive there. And so, 
you know, as Chance mentioned earlier, we're looking, you know, Medicare is trying to shift risk, right? Financial risk, right? But there's still a cultural component of trusting those providers. So I think it's important to look in parallel as we're seeing some of these other programs explore new models and strategies for care delivery and seeing a lot of satisfaction from patients, which you know, I think just adds gas to the tank and promotes more in this in this value-based space. I mean, and I think it's, you know, related, but I guess more so on the regulatory front, if there are any noteworthy shifts happening on that front. You know, that's right. I think they're related. Obviously, the telehealth, behavioral health, I think you're seeing really more on the state level as, you know, I'm based in Tennessee, but I'm not necessarily a Tennessee attorney, right? I I, communication with all different agencies across the board. And, And my general impression is, these occupational boards, medical boards, and nursing boards are really having to kind of confront and and look at these new issues with telehealth, right? Who's the provider? Where they're at? Is this appropriate? You know, scope of practice laws have always been written extremely broad, and I'm sure they'll stay broad. But approaching some of these questions, it hasn't been addressed by these medical boards, right? Value-based care requires a lot of delegation and push down to, you know, home health aides and RNs, LPNs, things of that nature. And so this, this idea of delegation is really being challenged. And for the most part, I'm not seeing a ton of activity there, but it's definitely been a lot more conversations with, with, with medical boards, nursing boards and the like. That makes sense. And I think Chance, the report from BMG talks a good amount about ACOs and, you know, goes into some particulars about that. I feel like you can't have a conversation about value-based care without looking at some of the things happening around ACOs. And you also are talking about Medicare shared savings program. Anything that noteworthy from the report that you'd want to call out to our listeners? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, as of January 2023, there was about 456 ACOs uh, participating in MSSP. They're providing coverage to about 11 million beneficiaries. So if you think about the shared savings program, there's the basically all the different tracks. There's kind of the, the basic tracks, you know, track A and B. And then you have the more two-sided tracks where there's upside and downside to different levels, you know, C, D, and E. And then lastly, you have the enhanced track. What we're seeing, you know, right now is that uh, in 2022, about 33% we're in the kind of upside only tracks. And then as far as in the uh, upside downside tracks and where you get to fully into the enhanced model, there was about 35% uh, of ACOs were in the uh, enhanced tracks. And so what that shows to me is that there's more and more ACOs moving through the the, the spectrum of risk uh, to where they're taking on, you know, a more downside risk. And so we're, we're I think we'll continue to see that as there's more, you know, technology and sophistication and understanding um, at the, you know, especially at the individual physician level, much less at the higher ACO levels. Perfect. That's really helpful. Um, All right. So I want to shift our attention more to the kind of transactions component of your report. Over the last 10 years or so, we've seen similar trends toward the reallocation of risk and the containment of healthcare costs across the spectrum. So we just talked about, you know, I think this includes Medicare and primarily through the Medicare Shared Savings Program and commercial players. And recently, several market participants have started to tout the importance of technology, um, which I think you, you mentioned early on in your introduction, 
and enhancing patient care and lowering the cost of managing a patient population. And many of these companies have entered the market through IPOs or SPACs, which is pretty interesting. I think we've the buzz around SPACs has maybe dwindled a little bit, but it was um, pretty high there for a bit. And can you share more with us on what you're seeing with respect to value-based care companies in the market and the interest there and uh, around kind of IPOs and, and SPACs um, and are the expectations where they should be? Yeah, that's an interesting question because, you know, there's, like you mentioned, there is a tremendous amount of activity through, you know, uh, SPACs, which are, you know, special purpose acquisition companies. So we saw companies, you know, go public through those or through IPOs or, or, or whatnot. And so uh, there's a tremendous amount of interest in these companies because this is novel. Everyone understands, you know, this is where there's some returns to be had if you can manage this, these patient populations effectively. So I think the market was excited. Compound that with, you know, some COVID factors to where patients weren't necessarily using healthcare in the traditional ways, kind of pre-COVID and kind of like they are today. Uh, so there was relatively low on a, on a per patient basis, you know, people weren't going to the doctor, they weren't getting that knee surgery, they weren't doing this. So the, the cost of care relative to what was actually being paid through a BBC type model uh, was actually very, very favorable. So again, a lot of market excitement. And then once kind of these, you know, in 2021, once these uh, companies kind of hit the public markets, uh, I think what we all saw was that, you know, some of the promise of acquiring lives was, it wasn't quite as easy as, as, as was promised. Also, it's it takes time to recognize profitability in a value-based arrangement. It takes time to educate, you know, the providers and how to operate within that. It takes time to to ultimately just get the payments in a shared savings model or whatever. It's not you have to build the foundation and then ultimately it takes several years for that to to kind of come into fruition. So what all of this kind of compounded and then you know also life kind of sort of returned to normal. And so uh, expectations were readjusted ultimately. So uh, as far as initially, maybe expectations were high, then they were brought down. Uh, they're, they're probably where they should be. I mean, these are still very desirable uh, entities in the marketplace. I mean, we're seeing some companies do do very well. Uh, if you look at some of the reports and how they're, they're project, what their actual uh, beneficiaries are versus, you know, what they were projected you know, it's, it still remains a, an attractive subsector. So, I mean, take, for example, you know, CVS has announced the um, acquisition of, of Oak Street as it closed, but, you know, that's a, it's a, it's a relatively large valuation. And so I think there was some, some initial overestimations that were right-sized and now the market seems to be, have a better understanding of how these, these entities operate. Okay, and then let's talk about vertical integration or vertical consolidation in the value-based care sector. There's a lot of non-traditional players, I feel like, that are entering this space. You know, we've talked about providers, payviders, health systems, but there's some other organizations that have entered the field. Um, so maybe tell us more about that. Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest ones that come to mind are obviously Amazon, Walgreens, CVS, you know, those types of, of retailer type entities. You know what they're they're doing is you know they've identified opportunities to leverage their national reach within their existing operations, their existing technology platforms, and everything to hopefully improve outcomes, reduce costs, and ultimately you know lead to profitability. And the way that they're going to do that is through a BBC model, basically, right? Since they have the technology platform, 
we've seen a huge influx of these, you know, since 2021. And so it's not necessarily there's the initial acquisition of the platform and then, you know, the continued bolt-ons and further technology enablement that, and so there's a kind of a frenzy of, of transactions around any kind of one retailer moving into this space. And we'll kind of get into that later, I believe. So really, I mean, there's just a lot of well-capitalized players that can enter the space that have the background, have the ability to manage this technology and the membership in a way that they see that they can make profit. So it's interesting, but you're looking at hindsight 2020, maybe not surprising. Right. Well, I think it's, you know, going where the consumer is, right? It's it's yeah. really that consumerism play here. And if, you know, I'm ordering everything else on Amazon or right. <laughs> like, why not go ahead and, and try to grow that pie? So, you know, we're, we've talked about Walgreens and Amazon. There's obviously a lot, a lot of chatter um, in, in the healthcare industry about these two retail players now coming in their investments in healthcare over the last couple of years. I think a lot of organizations feel threatened by it and rightfully so. Um, but based on some of their recent investments, it seems like this is more than just a lot of talk and they're putting their money where their mouth is. And, and we're seeing some real traction. You think about things like Amazon Pharmacy um, and even when Amazon's joint venture they had with, with Berkshire and um, JP Morgan, you know, when that was announced that it failed, it was sort of like, oh, okay, see, there it is. It's not going to work. But they've decided to kind of just take a different approach with it. So I think there is some some realness to this. And and can you dig deeper into what these two companies are actually doing and, and similar organizations are doing as it relates to value-based care? And we talk about this, you know, it's a very large umbrella when we talk about value-based care, but what are they specifically doing that really plays into that space? Yeah. So so Amazon specifically, you know, they're I'd say their big acquisition was with One Medical. So that's a, a membership-based primary care organization. That was a $3.9 billion transaction. So if you think about, you know, One Medical, it's, it's you know, subscription-based. They manage, you know, their, your primary care doc. They manage your whole, you know, healthcare journey and everything. Being subscription-based, that seems to, at least in my mind, line up very well with Amazon. You know, a lot of most folks have an Amazon subscription. They have the technology platform to manage that. And so in stepping into healthcare, that's kind of a natural progression in my mind. Also, you know, through their one medical acquisition, they gain access to Iora Health. Uh, Iora Health was acquired by uh, One Medical in, I think, June of 2021 for about $2.1 billion. The Iowa Health acquisition, you know, allowed One Medical to kind of step into a value-based delivery platform, you know, specializing in, in Medicare Advantage and then other at-risk types of arrangements. So uh, that was kind of one big uh, transaction. Uh, another one to, to kind of note would be uh, Walgreens acquired uh, CareCentrics, uh, or a 45% stake in it for uh 392 million. And then in 2020, August of 2022, they bought the remaining 55% for 800 million. Carecentrics is a care coordination platform. It's more focused on post-acute and home health, but it has a membership of, you know, 19 million beneficiaries and, you know, about 7,400 provider locations. So, Instead of a direct primary care route, you know, this is a little bit different. This goes into the home health uh, sector and other value-based care models. Uh, CVS Aetna in September of 2022 announced that it would acquire Signify, uh, which would be about $8 billion. Signify is a technology-based platform that provides provider networks with uh, analytics and, and, and other technology that allows them to operate within a value-based uh, model. 
lots of big transactions. And I think, you know, more recently, in my mind, not necessarily in our report, but is the CVS announcement that it's going to, you know, acquire Oak Street, which Oak Street manages MA Lives and actually has the provider network and everything and provides a full uh, delivery model. And so this would just provide further, greater uh, integrated delivery system for CVS Aetna. All right. And then what what about the more traditional providers? I, I mentioned that earlier, but examples of transactions that that demonstrate providers investing in the risk-based arrangements. Yeah. So the big recent one would be the the, the completed acquisition of Summit Health City MD by Village MD, which is a subsidiary of Walgreens. So again, we've kind of got the the large retailer, we've got the value-based uh, management enabler, and then we also have the ultimate provider. At this Investment is valued about $8.9 billion. And so it's, it's quite large because if you think of the Summit Health City MD's footprint in the Northeast and, and some on the West Coast, it's 680 provider locations in 26 markets with 20,000 employees once it's all combined with Village MD. So a lot of geographic coverage and a high ability to kind of manage the whole patient experience and then provide, you know, an effective outcome and ultimately a profitable service while operating within the value-based setting, you know, that that kind of Village MD specializes in. Another big uh, transaction was Skylight Health, uh, which is more healthcare service technology company bought Neighbor MD for about $8 million in May of 2022. Uh, Neighbor MD, this one's a little bit unique because it's so geographic situated in kind of central and southern Florida, uh, they have about 5,000 lives. And so of that, you know, over 1,000 of them are full risk Medicare Advantage lives and the, the other are, you know, affiliated through other providers and practices. But what it allows Skylight Health to do is have a direct relationship with, you know, a provider-based, you know, neighbor MD that actually can actually manage the whole life. So interesting transaction. Uh, it's their first full entry into total risk type contracts. And then I think one of the bigger players that we all tend to think about this kind of pay biter, technology enabled, consolidated vertical integration, you know, Optum was very, very active in 2022. Uh, Optum is the, you know, kind of the provider technology enabled uh, subsidiary of United Health Group, uh, United Health Group, obviously the, the health plan. So in April, they bought the Kelsey Sable Clinic, a large risk-bearing physician organization in Houston. They bought Atrius Health, which was a community-based physician group in the in eastern Massachusetts. They have bought Healthcare Associates of Texas, a Dallas-based physician practice management company. And so I think that's just a continuation of what we've seen kind of you know, United and Optum do is just what you would call kind of the consolidator of primary care and other even specialists uh, through their platform to, to, you know, start at the United Health level and manage the whole dollar of the patient care. Another interesting transaction was CareMax. CareMax acquired all the value-based care seniors associated with Stewart Health System. It consists of a direct contracting entity, Medicare shared, shared savings programs, all through ACOs and whatnot. That was about for about $25 million in cash and issued about $23.5 million in, in uh, equity. So, I, I mean, I could go on and on, Morgan. There's so many transactions. Yeah. Um, and Daniel, do you have any additional noteworthy transactions that we've seen, not just in 2022, but even more recently in the space? Any, any transactions that you're watching closely? Yeah, I think which plays nicely off of what Chance was saying is 
is the Geisinger and Kaiser uh, combination into Ryzen Health, right? Before, you know, hearing words like Amazon, these, these large players entering the space, you know, value-based care with risk is going to take deep pockets, right? Economies of scale. If you want to take on risk, you're going to have to be ready to pay, right? General understanding with providers, it's, it, you're not saving right away. It takes a little while to program to roll out collaboration. There's just operational difficulties that could take a year or two, maybe three to really see uh, gains. So that's where you're seeing these you know, outside players coming in, but this rise in health with Kaiser and Geisinger coming, potentially coming together if it's approved is it, it could be a, a huge shift, right? I think that this nonprofit system hoping to kind of tuck in other nonprofits, community-based health systems into this umbrella offers a exciting kind of, I wouldn't say a, a parallel route, but like, you know, a, players in the system with strong cash positions, able to really trying to drive change. So uh, I'm excited to see if that comes through, you know, with Kaiser's is committed to making it work and is committed a lot of cash, which I'm sure is going to be used as some type of risk-based capital and uh, to go and get some of these contracts and uh, being able to leverage some of their technology across uh, their existing provider relationships could be uh, exciting and a good case study to hopefully um, speed up growth. Yeah. And then I think, you know, the other component to this is technology companies that are partnering up with providers. I know there were a couple examples included in the report. Chance, any of those in particular you want to call out? Yeah, I think what's interesting is the, you know, what what Privy and Agilon are doing uh, and that they're, uh, especially from my perspective, a lot of my work is centered around kind of not-for-profit health systems. And so what we're seeing is, you know, Privia and Agilon partner with, you know, either health systems or large groups and marketplaces to kind of be their technology-based or management partner as they pursue more depth in the value-based or risk spectrum. Uh, so, you know, Privia, you know, has their relationship with Navant. They've also, uh, interestingly enough, they, you know, in in February of 2022, they're going to work with uh, some physicians and related to surgery partners in Montana on a uh, on a clinic and surgery center and everything. And they're going to leverage their technology to kind of build a physician platform there. Agilon, you know, it announced its first long-term partnership with Maine Health in 2022, uh, which would be the, you know, the largest integrated health system in Maine and New Hampshire. And then throughout the year, also Agilon announced partnership with health systems in Michigan, South Carolina, you know, Minnesota, Tennessee, and so forth and so on. So, you know, we're seeing it takes technology, expertise, and capital to go into these type, like like Daniel was saying, to go into a value-based care uh, type of arrangement as you're transitioning from kind of a the traditionally easily understood fee-for-service model. And so uh, there's companies like Agilon and Privia that, that have this expertise that are marking themselves well to health system and other clinician partners. I think that's really helpful. I mean, it's just so interesting how all the different players can sort of tap into this market. And I think, you know, it, it really does take collaboration, as you're seeing in a lot of these transactions where it's, you know, for instance, like you just said, the technology vendors that are partnering up with providers and you've got the payvider side of this. So it's really, I think we're moving in the right direction, even though it has taken us a a decade to, to start to see some of this activity. Of course, the other players in this landscape here that we're looking at are the investors. And I know that they're either, you know, PE backed companies, some of which we've already mentioned, but also, you know, looking at funds that are completely dedicated or almost entirely dedicated to investing in this space. 
happy to start with either one of you. I know that the report actually gives some examples. So Chance, maybe you want to talk through some of these examples that you all included in the report? Sure, sure. I'll start with a a larger one. In February of 2022, we saw Kinderhook Industries announce a $500 million investment physician partners LLC. Physician Partners is a value-based primary care group in MSO uh, in Florida, has over 137,000 members and provider network of over 445 physicians. You know, so this investment by an investor will help accelerate, you know, Physician Partners growth, not in the Florida market, but also potential entry into out-of-state markets. So uh, just like the traditional financial investor, what you're doing is you're providing capital for growth, right? Um, We also saw uh, Genuine Health Group announce the acquisition of Accountable Care Medical Group, ACMG, in April of 2022. The acquisition follows Genuine Healthcare Group's acquisition of Premier Care Associates and Preventi Med, which were all funded by like a $160 million capital infusion from, from Crestline Partners, the financial investor. So all of these companies, you know, have added over 20,000 Medicare patients to, to Genuine Health Group's membership base. So all set up to really, uh, you know, they had the ACOs, they have, you know, the provider base, and they're going to have a direct contracting entity. So they'll ultimately have kind of two levers of operating within their Medicare Advantage patient population. Another interesting development is with Valtruis, which has several uh, portfolio companies. The fund's dedicated exclusively to value-based care services and, you know, invest investments from um, Wells Carson over the next several years. The areas Valtruis is, is in from oncology to nephrology, but also mental health, which you're seeing more and more uh, providers interested in. They've got a tech company as well, a spine, a joint group as well. And just seeing a lot more development, which is interesting beyond the very acute nephrology oncology, it's expansion beyond that, which what I'm seeing in my practice as well is, you know, obviously primary care has been more of a discussion, but, you know, how do you get those lower level providers involved? Um, and so I, I see, you know, over the next year or two, as individuals and groups are getting more data, more understanding and partnerships and cooperations, just an expansion to, to beyond just the, the standard nephrology oncology. And Daniel, based on your knowledge, is Valtruis, remind me, are they actually going out and acquiring businesses or are they kind of building businesses around an idea? So for instance, you know, it's something on oncology or, you know, you mentioned behavioral health or mental health. Are they going out sort of building these companies or are they going out and and acquiring businesses and doing add-ons from there? My understanding is originally they were going to just invest in companies or finance as opposed to standing up new portcos. But once yeah. once they've established their portfolio, expansion can take a variety of forms, right? Finding small physician practices, that takes time and energy, setting up de novos, other partnerships or joint ventures. But to scale, right? We keep coming back to scaling is important. Scaling fast is important. Having a game plan is one thing, but then operationalizing is going to require pivoting and changes and flexibility. So I've seen that across several clients right now. If the game plan is, you know, we're on plan E, that doesn't necessarily mean that's the fifth best plan. It's just that's what had to be used for this arrangement to go through. When we talk about value-based care, it's really a coordination and cooperation between a payer and a provider, right? It's got its two-way, it's trust. And so a provider needs to be what the payer needs, right? So we're seeing a lot of different ways, a lot of pivoting uh, just to get that scale happening fast. And are there, we've mentioned a few sectors and you just touched on this, Daniel, but there's a lot of activity, it seems, on the primary care front. 
But when you look at things like um, what Valtruis has done with their oncology platform, there are definitely some areas like that, nephrology, others that require a lot of coordination of care um, or very complicated cases. Are there specific segments or sectors that are of interest kind of outside the ones we've mentioned, primary care, nephrology, oncology, but are there certain ones that are really right for this, this model? It's easiest with data-wise to be able to point to a change when there's very acute, specific diagnosis or condition, right? So like maybe post-hospitalization, for instance, home hospitalization, right? With certain, you know, eight to 12 different diagnoses, it's it's pretty easy to track cost of care and episode payments. This is obviously a 2.0 of that and beyond. You know, behavioral health is really difficult, but we're seeing more people jumping in that space with partnerships with primary care providers, which gives the bottom line of total cost of care of a patient and understanding the, you know, the physical physical and mental work together. But that's, you know, inherently difficult to quantify, spend, and it's sometimes cost of care isn't appropriate for just behavioral health by itself. You know, sometimes best outcomes and result in longer life. And, you know, that does that affects the bottom line, right? It, the opposite way that you're usually looking at total cost of care, which emphasizes an important point, right? Patient satisfaction, quality, those metrics are still driving a lot of this, not just the, you know, TCC total cost of care. So I predict seeing more, I wouldn't call them, you know, their specialties, but um, I work with a dietitian platform, right? Uh, that, I, that I think is exciting. It's growing quick. Sylvan Health, where they could work alongside a oncology care partners or an Interworld Health, which is their the Valtruis's kidney and uh, oncology platforms, and and kind of help push value there, right? So, as these kind of lower level, less acute providers that could provide care to really just the entire population are trying to find ways to bolster and help kind of find their niche in this space. But it's a data game, right? So they're, they're going to have to get as many at-bats as possible and see what's working and then have a thesis that they can prove out and show potential partners and, and payers. Great. And Chance, I can't have this conversation with you without asking a question specifically about valuations. Can you give us a broad understanding of where valuations sit in the value-based care sector, especially in comparison to other sectors that are covered in your report? I know there's a lot of buzz around the space, but curious to know more specifically about the valuations. Yeah, I think valuations are going to remain highly attractive, very strong, even when you compare it against other sub-industries. You know, obviously, for all the factors we mentioned, there's a lot of things that make this very appealing to investors and in, in driving the valuations. You know, obviously the biggest one being a growing M and A population. You know, with the uh, just the demographics of our of our nation. I think you know what I get asked more and more is you know, hey, what's what's the multiple of EBITDA for this, or what's the value per life of that, or what's the revenue multiple? And you know, unfortunately, it's not such an established industry where we have these rules of thumb that we might have for for other sub industries. So I don't have a magic, well, they should trade at X times EBITDA or X times X price per life because it is so fragmented and there's so many different types of transactions. So what are we talking about when we're talking about valuation? You know, are we talking about an enabler? Are we talking about a plan? Are we talking, are we talking about a, a provider group that has a bunch of MA lives? Are we talking about a provider plan that has a bunch of MA lives and they already went down the BBC uh, path a little bit. So, you know, all of that is going to dictate what the valuation is. And just like any sub-industry within healthcare or even, 
you know, any type of valuation uh, you're looking at, there's obviously the factors of, you know, size and scale, profitability and projected growth that ultimately go into that valuation. So, you know, all of these things are, you know, what makes this a bit unique right now and that there's no just magic X times EBITDA or anything that we always get asked. So I think as the market matures and there's more transactions and, you know, we look at these, there'll be some some more clarity on that. But I think what everyone's really looking at right now is just a, a, a discounted cash flow type of analysis or a projection and return model. And just thinking about, you know, what is the uh, the ultimate value of this entity? So it's, it's, it's a bit unique, honestly. We're nearing the end here. I want to give each of you maybe a minute or so to give us your predictions of what will happen in this space over the next 12, 18 months. It's a highly fragmented, relatively new industry. I think we're going to see a lot of consolidation, a lot of vertical consolidation, you know, as we think of the whole spectrum of managing the the patient's life, right, and the healthcare costs. We're going to continue to see that. Uh, I think, like Daniel mentioned earlier, as there's more sophistication and more, you know, the process is better understood, I think we're going to see a further movement into actual specialty care. And it might be into some specialties that you wouldn't necessarily traditionally think would would fall to this in the in the traditional way, uh, maybe orthopedics or or things like that. So, uh, I think we're going to see a lot of transactions. I think we're going to see a lot of big transactions, like we've seen in the last couple of years, but also a lot of like bolt-ons and geographic expansion type type transactions. So, all that's going to continue in my mind. All right, I got a I got a prediction too. My crystal ball is crystal clear here. You know, we talked about the Amazons getting in the, in, in the game. We talked about, you know, Kaiser linking up with Geisinger, you know, folks within the game. And so we're seeing different strategies. I, I per, I'm predicting a, a bigger push with physician involvement and participation and, and the way maybe push towards value-based enterprises and getting physicians more buy-in, right? Any, any company can have the best idea in the world. You have to execute on that idea, right? Execution requires... Um, your operators, you know, your physicians, your providers walking in sync and having incentives and buy-in, right? Before this podcast, I was on the phone with a client having issues really pushing providers forward, right? And getting that buy-in, changing patterns, viewing that new provider, not as a referral source in a cascading drop-down menu, but as a partner, right? And understanding the importance of that integration. And so the reason I think was going to push that way is it's Look at, you know, macroeconomics right now, like look at inflation right now, look at physician compensation over the last 10 years is flat or stagnant at best, right? Traditionally, the doctors were making a a lot of money, right? The nicest house on the street, you're not seeing that as as much anymore. And I think that's that there's going to be a change culturally. There's got to be with these physicians, right? As this continues to happen, as Medicare continues to push uh, fee for service rates down. And and so maybe seeing more ownership in physicians. So what that, what does that look like? What does that mean? I'm not 100% sure, but I'm sure we're going to start seeing more complicated setups on how distribution is going to go directly to physicians. Physicians coming to the table more, joining network where they're going to have either demands or um, ideas on what, what that needs to look like and what their payments need to be. And so that that's what I imagine seeing. And we'll see. We'll check back in, set your calendar date for two years from now to see if that's right. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much. Obviously, we could have gone on a lot longer. We had to really skim through some of the details of um, all the transactions and activity that's happening in the space, but look forward to further conversation. And I appreciate both of you joining me today. Thanks, Morgan. Thanks, Chase. Thanks, Morgan. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for listening to Council That Cares. 
For more information on Holland and Knight's healthcare and life sciences team, please visit hklaw.com forward slash healthcare.